3: Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey
4: everyone, it's Motsi. Today we will be doing something very different in honor of Philippine Independence Day or Araw ng Kalayaan, June 12th what you'll be hearing is our newest Crimes of the Marcoses feature, as narrated by Reg. This episode will largely pertain to martial law, which Ferdinand Marcos, our country's most infamous dictator and kleptocrat, used to stay in power for over two decades of Philippine history. History that his incompetent, equally kleptocratic son, Bongbong Marcos, as well as his co-ruler and fellow dictator, Imelda Marcos, aims to erase or downplay. We'll also be replaying some specific excerpts from Hainai episodes, and I'll be jumping in to explain the Filipino cultural context for many of these. So, spoilers if you haven't listened to the rest of Hainai. Lastly, I'll be reading aloud some stories pertaining to martial law. One of these stories will be in Tagalog, but translated at every line into English, and the second story will be in pure Tagalog. The Philippines is not free of kleptocrats and autocrats and people who take advantage of our most vulnerable. But we still celebrate our independence in hopes that we'll fight to take it.
2: Martial Law and the Crimes of the Marcuses Marcus' presidency in the Philippines, from 1965 to 1986, was marked by torture, corruption, plunder, and murder. Ferdinand Marcos won the presidential election and became the 10th president of the Philippines on December 30, 1965. He ran for a second term and won in 1969. It was the last term allowed him under the Constitution at the time. However, in 1972, he declared martial law, effectively placing him in continued power. He justified the proclamation by citing the attempted assassination of Defense Minister Juan Ponce Enrile and the bombings of Plaza Miranda. Enrile himself would later admit that the attempt was staged, though later retracted his statement. The Plaza Miranda bombings were blamed heavily on the Communist Party of the Philippines, but sufficient evidence was never found and it has been heavily suspected for decades that Marcos was one of the instigators of the bombings in a move to further justify martial law. Nevertheless, martial law ensured that he and his family stayed in power. Under his rule, curfews and regulations were placed. Freedom of expression, gone. Those caught with or producing any form of media or literature that criticized the administration were arrested without warrant. Many, never to be seen after. If you were caught out after hours, even for emergencies, you would be lucky to see your family again. During this period, 70,000 people were imprisoned, 34,000 were tortured, and 3,300 were murdered. And these are just the official documented numbers. Marcus wasn't the only one who grabbed at power. His family was able to benefit from the spoils of nepotism. His wife, Imelda, is world famous for her extravagant collection of designer shoes and excessive material purchases that went much above the expected income of the family. Two of his four children were given positions in public office. Aimee Marcos, the eldest, was made chairman of the youth organization Kabataang Barangay and was later given positions as the assemblyman for Ilocos Norte to the Batasang Pambansa and as a consultant to the minister of the National Media Production Center in Quezon City. On August 31, 1977, Archimedes Trajano, a 21-year-old student of Mapua Institute of Technology, Attended an open forum with Aimee Marcus when she was newly appointed as the Kabataang Barangay chairperson. He asked, Must the Kabataang Barangay be headed by the president's daughter? She wouldn't have gotten the position if she weren't the daughter of the president. Aimee was reported to have been irritated, and Archimedes was forced out of the forum by bodyguards who also blindfolded and beat him. The forum was the last time he was seen alive. On September 2, 1977, his body was found dead with signs of beating and apparent torture, and his body and face were severely mangled. Archimedes' death was not reported in local newspapers. An article released in an issue of the bulletin today, the day after his death, simply talked of deaths in college campuses due to hazings conducted by fraternities. Ferdinand's third child, Irene, and his adopted daughter, Amy Marcos, did not pursue careers in politics, but each went on to become successful in their chosen field. Rather, were given success through connections and positions handed to them by their father. And just like their mother, they purchased way above their official income. Imelda, Amy, Irene, and Amy deserve episodes each of their own. But let's talk about his second child. Ferdinand Marcos Jr., known more commonly as Bongbong Marcos. Bongbong Marcos, or BBM's, first formal role in a political office came with his election as vice governor of Ilocos Norte from 1980 to 1983. He was only 23 years old. On March 23, 1983, he was installed as the governor of Ilocos Norte, replacing his aunt who had resigned from the post due to health reasons. He stayed in power until 1986. To say his performance as vice governor and governor of the province was underwhelming would be too kind. He was a perennial absentee and in the six years in office he had no major projects. He was more often reported as partying and driving flashy cars. Despite holding the responsibility of his constituents livelihoods, Marcus Jr. attended school in the United States at Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania during his governorship, where he did coursework from 1979 to 1980, and then again from September 1981 to December 1981. During his studies, he had his own house, his own cars, and his own staff, all employed to attend his every need. Despite these lavish resources, and his heavy denial, he never earned a degree. Bongbong was also appointed by his father to be chairman of the board of the Philippine Communications Satellite Corporation in early 1985, allowing him to draw a monthly salary of up to 97000 US dollars, despite rarely visiting the office and having no duties there. Aside from the estates given to Bongbong and Aimee during their studies abroad, each of the Marcus children was assigned a mansion in the Metro Manila area, as well as in the cities of Baguio and Paranaque. All this corruption, theft, plunder, and human rights violations would eventually catch up to the family. From February 22 to 25, 1986, the Filipino people led the world's first non-violent revolution. The People Power Revolution, also known as the EDSA Revolution, was a series of popular demonstrations in the Philippines mostly in Metro Manila, on a large stretch of the Epifanio de los Santos Avenue, or EDSA, a major highway spanning 23 kilometers. These demonstrations led to the impeachment and exile of Ferdinand Marcos and his family, ending their tyrannical rule. The EDSA revolution involved over 2 million Filipino civilians, as well as several political and military groups, as well as religious groups led by Cardinal Sin, the Archbishop of Manila, and Cardinal Vidal, the Archbishop of Cebu. It was a symbol of Filipino resilience and unity in times of oppression and continues to be one of the Philippines' most important events in history. However, change would not come easy. A dark system of corruption and plunder is hard to break when the foundation is so heavily set. Ferdinand Marcos died on September 28, 1989, in exile in Honolulu, Hawaii. But his family would find themselves back in the Philippines more than a decade later. Imelda, Aimee, and Bongbong Marcos would install themselves in the political arena again. Imelda, influencing politics from behind the shadows, and Aimee and Bongbong, starting in smaller positions in the Locos Norte, Marcos' seat of power, where he still has many loyal followers to date, and then slowly climbing their way up to national government positions. On May 9, 2022, in a standoff against frontrunner Lenny Robredo that could be described as incredibly shady at best and disgustingly corrupt and staged at worst, Bongbong Marcos won the Philippine elections and became the 17th president of the Philippines.
4: In Hainai's special Remind Me to Tell You Later episode, Chanak, we delve into some folk horror with the Filipino monster known as the Chanak. Though Catholic influence had it as the soul of an aborted baby, it's more commonly held that the Chanak is a spirit or creature that tricks people with illusions. Earlier accounts had it that Chanuk would interfere with a live birth, so there would have to be men guarding against it outside a home or birthing chamber. There wasn't much, if any, stigma around abortion in many pre-colonial societies in the Philippines. Abortion was common practice for families to manage their inheritance and size, and only later demonized by the Catholic Church, along with many other pre-colonial beliefs. In Chanak, we also encounter another creature, the cigar-smoking, tree-dwelling giant Capre. There's also elements of how folk beliefs tie in with the sciences and medical knowledge, and we meet Mary's Lola for the first time from whom her nanae learns all she knows. I don't remember how long I ran before I eventually rounded the baleta tree and looked up, saw the dark figure sitting in its branches, smoking sedately on an enormous rolled cigar. I was frozen in place as it looked at me with its red eyes, the tip of its cigar lighting up like fireflies in the night. I could hear laughter like a baby's, (laughs) and the sinister chant of an old children's game as the Chanak neared me, knowing it had me cornered. I whispered my respects to the figure above my head. I hurriedly tugged my t-shirt off and turned it inside out just as the Chanak rounded the corner. And when it saw me, my shirt about halfway down my head, Worn the wrong way, my hair all a mess. It started laughing. It laughed so hard it fell on its back and it rolled in the dirt. And I ran right by it, thankful my nana had taught me everything I needed to know, not realizing how soon I'd need to know it. In Hainai, episode 11, Nakaraan, we hear about Mary's tatay, or dad, and his youth which takes place in the middle of martial law in the Philippines. This was a time colored by fear and direct threat to many people's lives, although the most privileged Filipinos and Marcoses themselves will tell you otherwise. Many people, notably young people, disappeared during this time and were tortured and killed, many never found again. This was a common fear due in large part to the martial law's curfew. Which was the main excuse for state forces to arbitrarily arrest people and send them to prison camps, similar to the method Duterte used during COVID-19 lockdowns, which resulted in multiple Filipinos getting killed. Some major examples include Liliosa Hilao, who was the first to die in police custody. Hilao's face was disfigured, and several notable injuries and bruises were found all over her body. These include several needle puncture marks on her left arm and forearm, and an opening at her throat. The medical equipment used by Liliosa did not seem to function properly, and no medical staff was attending to her. Another example was Archimedes Trajano. In 1977, Trahano, then a student of the Mapua Institute of Technology, stood up during an open forum where Aimee Marcos was speaking and asked why she was the national chairperson of the Kabataang Barangay. Witnesses said Trajano was seen forcibly taken from the venue by Aimee's bodyguards and was tortured for 12 to 36 hours and thrown out of a second-floor window. His bloodied body was found on the streets of Manila on September 2, 1977. There were countless others that experienced this treatment during martial law, with approximately 70,000 people imprisoned, 34,000 tortured, and over 3,200 people killed. That is the horror that looms over Nakaraan and Mari's in the story. Less so the specter of a headless reflection, which is based on a fairly well known urban legend in the Philippines, but the fact that the specter is an omen of death. Death which had become a commonplace thing surrounding Filipinos, especially Filipinos who weren't rich or privileged, like your average jeepney driver, or Yupi student, like Maristate was in the story.
5: So, I want to tell you a story.
4: It happened to someone I knew way back in the mid-70s. He was working for a company operating within the campus of the University of the Philippines, or UP. He always worked late shifts, was always the one to close after dark, always seen as reliable by his bosses. In a country on the equator, the sun rises and sets at pretty much the same time all year, and by the time this man closed up shop, It'd be near midnight, which was dangerous with the, um, curfew. Especially in Yuppie, back when the entire country was under a bloody dictatorship. But he did it anyway. He had such a genial demeanor about him. It was like its own magic. People liked him. They trusted him. And more than once, he got himself out of trouble simply by talking, by being agreeable. His wife always worried his luck would run out one day, but even he wasn't stupid enough to be out after midnight, in the very least because none of the jeepney routes dared risk that either. Jeepneys, a remnant of the World War II days commonplace around the country, would always make stops around the campus, so he was well acquainted with their schedules. He'd leave at 10.30, take the last jeep, arrive home at 11 without fail. There was one night that was different, though. One night, he got on the last jeepney, like usual. It was beautiful, vibrant red, painted so bright it was visible even in the dead of night. The driver gave him a friendly enough nod in the rear view as he paid, and the man had one arm hitched over the back of the long cushioned bench, Feeling the night air on his face as they went down one of the up's rounded roads. The second time the man looked up, he saw the driver's eyes fixed on him in the mirror. His pupils were pure black, so dilated that they stood out stark against the whites of his wide eyes. When the driver saw the man look back, his eyes went right back to the road, and the man wondered if the long day had him on edge. He thought that for about as long as it took for the driver to hit a familiar intersection and turn left instead of right. Excuse me, he said.
5: My stop is that way.
4: He was genial, agreeable. He feared what the driver would do if he was otherwise. The driver said nothing. The man didn't know what to think as the jeepney driver circled around, drove them right back the same roads, eyes flitting between the rearview mirror and the road. It took an entire twenty minutes to near where the driver had changed direction. The man sat at the very back of the jeep, made the decision right then. If the driver turned left once more, he'd have to jump. It would hurt, and he'd probably get cut up on the asphalt in the process, but if this driver didn't do something to hurt him, then the time the man would spend trying to get home on foot until curfew enforcers picked him up absolutely would. As they neared the intersection, the driver spoke suddenly. "'Please don't jump, Kuya,' he said. He sounded terrified." Sincere, his eyes were fixed on the rear view, and the man thought he saw tears. And when they arrived at the intersection, the driver turned right. It was eleven by then. When they finally arrived at the man's stop, all the lights were off. He had to navigate by the distant, intermittent lights of passing cars. Kuya, said the driver as he was about to disembark.
5: In the mirror, when
4: I looked at you, you had no head. And the man understood. Thank you, Manong, he said. My wife is a Babailan, he added. When you get home,
5: burn all your clothes.
4: The driver looked relieved, nodding seriously at the man's words. With one last wave,
5: he pulled away, his beautiful, blood-red Jeep rounding the corner.
4: When he got home, the man locked the gate behind him, and removed all his clothing before entering the house. He set his clothing on fire in the garage, the smell alerting his wife. All he said when she came and draped a towel over his naked body was, (laughs) I like that shirt. She had him stand in front of a mirror, looking for signs. Then she wrapped his head and steamed water in a pot beneath him cleansing him with oils. He slept well that night. The next night, he took the same route, in a different jeep, a different driver. Nothing unusual. It took him another two months before he saw the red jeep again, and the driver in it was not the same one he spoke to that night. When he got to speaking with a young man that was at the wheel, he learned that the driver he'd met Had come home one night and burned all his clothes, which made his family worry. But then he'd been all right for a few weeks. Then one night, his Jeep broke down after his last stop. He tried to get home on time, but he'd been out past curfew. They only found his Jeep. The omen of death, it seemed, had been for him. not my father, my tatae. <sighs> or maybe the omen had nothing to do with it. Maybe it was just bad luck that he ended up being one of the many who disappeared under the Marcos government. They never found his body, so... In Madre, the context is a bit closer to home, with a young Mary going to an all-girls school like I did, that was extremely haunted, like mine was. The layout of that school and even the stories were taken straight out of the school I spent a decade in, from elementary to high school. Even The Peeping Nun, which is a fairly famous ghost story in the Philippines. It was fun to incorporate it into the Hainai universe. Fun fact, the sound of the nun coming forward was actually inspired by a different Filipino ghost story but we can get to that another time. I distinctly remember Ira calling out, asking me if I was still there. When I answered back, it was... it was like... like my ears popped. A sudden blanket of silence erasing the peaceful school atmosphere. I think maybe Ira heard it too, because I heard her call my name a second time, sounding uncertain. I asked if she was done. I didn't get an answer. Not that I was listening for it, when the first sound I heard in the dead silence was the too loud sound of slow footsteps passing behind me. I think the funniest thing about that moment, looking back, was the fact that she had such loud footsteps when I couldn't even see a hint of her feet. Just the bottom of her black dress, a habited form moving with purpose, raised at least an inch above the floor. I was facing the mirror, but I kept my face down afraid of what I'd see if I raised my eyeline. I didn't want to see her face. I didn't want to see her eyes. I could hear nothing but her footsteps. She moved further away from me and toward the far end of the room where Ira was changing in the cubicles. I breathed with every step, Hoping against hope that she couldn't see or sense me. (laughs) Honestly, if I saw her now, I'd have dealt with her no problem. We definitely dealt with worse back at the Christie house. But some things stick with you when you're that young. And the sight of that nun's eyes... I think maybe if I'd stayed quiet, we'd both have been okay, if a little spooked. But the closer it got to where Ira was, the stronger the impulse to do something. Stop it, even if I didn't quite know how. So, I step forward. And. She was upon me before I could even blink, wide eyes staring down at me, gray hands grasping my shoulders. I realized then that nobody had ever described this nun's mouth before. Nobody, it seemed, had ever seen it. I'll tell you right now, it was very similar to her eyes. Uncomfortably similar. Especially opened as wide as it was. A void I could stare into, knowing something was staring right back. My mouth must have gotten just as wide when I screamed. It... shouldn't have happened. That's what I keep thinking even now. She shouldn't have been there. Shouldn't have noticed me. Should have... stuck to the script shouldn't have broken those rules that everybody had set before us. But even then, it seemed like I knew something before I knew it. Knew that something was off about this particular specter, even before I encountered her. Maybe that was why I was so afraid. She grabbed me so hard, I started feeling lightheaded. And for a moment, I couldn't see anything beyond her black eyes and mouth. Couldn't hear anything other than her scream and mine. It felt like I was falling. I don't know for how long. And then... And then... The sound of distant laughter. Cars driving home the unting unting around my neck, humming like a rung bell against my sternum. Ira came out of the bathroom stall looking a bit shaken, asked if I saw her. It wouldn't be until years later, when we started dating in college, that I told her the truth. In Hainai's Act Two finale, Undas... We find out what happened to Marius' tatay, or father. He was a missionary who worked to expand education and schooling in far-flung areas and barangays. He was eventually red-tagged by the AFP, or the Armed Forces of the Philippines, and dismembered. In response, Nanay murders all the soldiers involved and hangs their bodies from trees, akin to the actions of the CIA against rebels in the Philippines. It's wild but true, look it up. Tatay's story may be fictional, but it's inspired directly by many different activists being murdered by the state. The most recent inspiration was Chad Book, a volunteer teacher of the LUMAD, a historically oppressed group of indigenous Filipinos made up of subgroups such as the Bagobo, Bilaan, Tiboli, and so on. He created a mental health first aid app with Ubi Manila. He graduated cum laude from the University of the Philippines. He was arrested without warrant by the police and held for months, before activists and lawyers eventually got them released due to lack of evidence. He and others, known collectively as the Bata'an Five, were eventually murdered. Their bodies were paraded around by the AFP as trophies. Though they claim it was an encounter with communist rebels, every other source that was not them confirmed it was a massacre by the army. Forensics confirm that his multiple gunshot wounds showed an intent to kill. I was once told by a friend of mine that Chad Book was a friend from their local parish. He was arrested without evidence and murdered without cause over red-tagging, or modern McCarthyism where being accused of or found out as a communist means that you will be scapegoated and eventually killed. He was not the only one, but his story is commonplace. The Philippine army and police can and will murder with impunity, especially under an autocracy like Duterte's and Marcos's. There is very little horror in Hainai that can match real life. Dismembered bodies become commonplace when the Philippines is under regimes that encourage and glorify violence. You tend to know the people who are murdered in cold blood, know their family members and friends. You hear about dismembered bodies being found, and the army claiming they're either communist rebels, as though that justifies the dismemberment, or claiming that they were killed by communist rebels, which is their favorite excuse.
5: Well, once upon a time, there was a little girl. She had a mother, and a father, and a grandmother who loved her dearly. Mother was loving, but steadfast and unwavering. A presence, and one full of magic. She taught a little girl everything she knew. Father was charming, playful, and kind. He wasn't magical, not in the way that they were, but his wife used to say he had a unique bit of magic all his own. With words alone, he could make people smile. When people were angry, he could say exactly the right thing, and their anger would flow right out of the bottoms of their feet. It worked on mother, as unwavering as she was, because father was her world. It worked on friends and neighbors. It even worked on strangers. Good thing, too, because Father met a lot of strangers when he went up to the mountains. He went there to be a teacher for the native kids, whose education was neglected by the state. He worked with the farmers when he could. He was there for a while. The little girl even came to visit when she could. She thought it was a fun field trip even if it was a little boring when the adults talked like she wasn't there. This went on for years. Father would come home sometimes, but mostly he was in the mountains. Then one day, the little girl had a nightmare. She cried for her mother and told her what she saw. When they arrived, he'd been gone for six days. First, they found his eyes, delivered to the school in a jar. Then, they found his hands, wrapped in duct tape and plastic, in the fields where he'd helped the farmers. Then, they found his head, his hands, his head, his eyes, then the rest of him. Now, he was just one man, but to mother, He was the world. And so, with her magic, she took their eyes so that they could not see to aim their guns. She took their hands so they could not cut off another's. She took their heads and hung their bodies, bled from the trees. A monster's warning. Mother was a good person, steadfast and unwavering. But when they took her world from her, all she could feel was pain. Those men, with their power, their money, their guns, they were monsters. There can be no doubt. But what monsters do you think might be made when good people are made to suffer?
4: From here on, I'll be reading two stories. One is called Edsa, by Russell Molina, and Sergio Bumatay III. Russell Molina also wrote a short comic illustrated by Kajo Baldismo of Tresefame, entitled 1201, about a band stuck out during curfew during martial law. A pretty common theme. The other is called Ito Ang Dictadura, translated from Spanish to Tagalog written by Equipo Plantel and illustrated by Mikel Casal. It's a picture book discussing what it's like to live under an authoritarian regime. Both of these are available at Adarna House, in various bookstores in the Philippines as well as through their online bookstore. EDSA Kwento ni Russell Molina Guhit ni Sergio Bumatay III Edsa Story by Russell Molina Art by Sergio Bumatay III Published by Adarna House Isa One Isang ibong ibinebenta sa gitna ng Edsa one bird being sold in the middle of EDSA. Dalawa. Dalawang rajong naghahatid ng mainit na balita. Two. Two radios bringing the hottest news. Tatlo. Tatlong dilaw na lasong nakayakap sa puno. Three. Three yellow ribbons embracing the tree. Apat. Apat na estudyanteng umaawit ng buong puso. Four. Four students singing their heart sound. Lima. Limang sundalong mabilis na sumusulong. Five. Five soldiers quickly moving forward. Anim, anim na tankeng maingay na gumugulong. Six, six tanks noisily rolling by. Pito, pitong parit madreng Taimtim imtim na nangangalangin. Seven, seven priests and nuns fervently praying. Walo, walong bulaklak. Nasumasaayos saayos sa hangin. Eight, eight flowers dancing around in the wind. Sham, sham na truck na may dalang pagkain at tubig. Nine, nine trucks carrying food and water. Sampo. sampung pamilyang magkakapit bisig. Ten. Ten families arm in arm. Labing isa. Labing isang bandilang iwinawagayway. Eleven. Eleven flags being waved back and forth. Labing dalawa. Labing dalawang libong. Magkakahawak kamay. Twelve. Twelve thousand holding hands. Ito ang diktadura. Ideya at ni Equipo Palantel at guhit ni Mikel kasal Parang pagdidikta ang diktadura. Sinasabi ng isang tao kung anong ang dapat gawin. At sinusunod naman ito ng iba. Para lamang sa kapakanan ng pagsunod. Kailangan kong sumunod. Ang tao ang nadidikta, ang siyang namumuno. Siya ang Panginoon ng lahat, dahil hawak niya ang lahat sinusuportahan ng iilan at nilalaban ng karamihan. Araw-araw, maagang gumigising ang diktador na init ang ulo. si niyang pagalitan ang unang tao, makakasalubong niya. Sinunod siya ng lahat dahil takot sila sa kanya. At iyong mga hindi sumusunod o natatakot ay pinarurusahan Habang nagaalmosal, inuulat ng tagapaglingkod na punong ministro ang lahat ng muninyari sa bansa. Ang totoo, iilang pangyayari lamang yong mga makapagpapasaya sa diktador. Ginugugol niya ang kanyang araw sa pagdidikta. Nagdidikta siya ng mga batas, nagdidikta siya ng mga panangal, at nagdidikta rin siya ng mga parusa. Hilig niyang pasinayaan ang mga bagay, bahay, kanal at tulay. Dahil mahilig ang ditador sa malalaking bahay, mga napakalaki ang pinakamalaki sa lahat. Hindi ka maaaring mag-isip para sa inyong sarili sa ilalim ng diktadura. Maaaring mo lang isipin kung ano ang tulutang isipin ng diktador. Iyong mga hindi sang-ayon ay itinuturing na mali at itinatrato na masama. At iyong bukod sa hindi sang-ayon ay nagsasalita pa ay namubuhay ng mas malala. Minsan, ay kailangan pa nilang lumayo para sa kanilang kaligtasan. Kaya ang pinakamatapang Ay ang diktador. Siya ang pinakamatalino, ang pinakamahusay. ang pinakamataas, ang pinaka... walang kaibigan ang diktador. Ayon niya sa mga tao dahil siya lamang ang pinakamatalino, ang pinakamataas at pinakamatikas. Ngunit kinakaibigan ng iila ng diktador dahil nakakabuti sa kanila. Ipinagtatanggol nila ang diktador dahil hinahayaan ng diktador ang mayaman na lalo pang yumaman. Minsan ay mapagbigay din ang diktador sa mga kaibigan niya at nagkakaloob sa mga bagay na hindi naman dapat mapunta sa kanila. Nagbibigay siya ng lupa na pag-aari ng iba. Nagagawad siya ng mga palangal na mamahagi siya ng mga bagay na sa totoo lang ay pagmamayarin naman ng lahat. Batas din ang diktador dahil siya lamang ang gumagawa ng batas. At ang katarungan, mga kaibigan niya lamang ang maaaring maging hukom. Nais din niyang pamunuan ang militar, ang mapamantasan, ang mapabrika, bukid at tanggapan. Sinasabi niyang mas mabuti ang ganito dahil ang mga pamayanan bayan shudad at ang buong bansa ay payapa ng ganito dahil walang nagrereklamo at walang lumalaban ipinagmamalaki niya ang kaniyang bansa dahil sa kanya ang buong bansa kaya dumadalo siya sa mga parada nagdaraos ng masalo-salo nagbibigay ng matalumpati samantala sawa na ang taong bayan Natatakot Nagihirap Pinagsasamantalahan Wala silang ginawa kundi magtrabaho at lumikha Ngunit nag din sila At tulad ng inaasahan sa pamamagitan ng pag-iisip Ay unti-unti nilang napagtanto ang bagay-bagay Napagtanto nilang hindi naman talaga matapang ang diktador Hindi matalino Hindi patas Napagtantunay lang ang katotohanan ay mabuti lamang para sa iilan, hindi patas sa lahat, ang napakalupit sa iba. Ngunit hindi nila ang labanan ang diktador. Dahil pag-aari ng diktador ang lahat, sa lapi, sandata, lupa, at pinakamasama pa, karaniwang nagtatagal ang mga diktadura ng marami taon. Natapos lamang ang diktadura kapag pumanaw na ang diktador, minsan dahil pinaslang siya o kung sa palitan siyang pinaalis sa puesto. At agad-agad, kapag natapos na ang kwento ng diktadura, magsisimula naman ang kwento ng Kalayaan.
5: You're listening to Hainai
4: by Motsi Dapul.
3: Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
0: How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger. Feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC.